So we're reading 2 Samuel, um, chapter 1, uh, 1 through verse 1 through to 16. After the death of Saul, David return, returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An, an Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and had brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord, and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought in the report, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Thank you, brother. Morning, everyone. I add my welcome to that of Bertie. In case we haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. A couple of things before I get underway this morning. First of all, I really want to echo uh, that, uh, that word of thanks for all those who uh, helped with the bake sale last week. Uh, it's tremendously helpful for uh, our youth group, and I, I really appreciate that. Uh, second of all, if uh, you're new or visiting, I'm especially glad that you're here, especially if you came along last week for Church for the Curious and you've uh, decided to stick around. Uh, good on you. Lovely to have you back. Third, just a tiny little bit of uh, trivia, well, actually, no, I shouldn't say trivia, tiny bit of uh, important information. Uh, when you see the word anointed in the Bible, it literally means covered, usually with oil. You've had something poured on you. Uh, why is there the Lord's anointed, someone that had something put? Well, because once upon a time, that was a way of saying, uh, we recognize that you are chosen for a special office, usually a king. So, if you've got oil poured on your head, it means, for, for, for God's people, Israel, you're a king chosen by God. Uh, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which translates Messiah, and in Greek, it's Christos, which translates Christ. So to kill the Lord's anointed is to kill the Lord's Christ. Just good to have that in your mind uh, for, for today. Anyway, with that all out of the way, let me uh, pray and we'll get stuck into uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let's pray. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us. 
We pray you'd help us concentrate now to tremble and rejoice at your word and on account of listening to it, become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, trying to live righteously can sometimes get really tiring. You're driving somewhere, running late. The light goes from green to the amber. You know that because there's no one close behind you, it's actually right to slow down and stop. And so you do. That's honouring to God, obeying the laws of the land. But you sit there now at the stop line, even more anxious and frustrated because you're now even later than you otherwise would have been. And it just wears on you. It's like, man, if I was just unrighteous, it would be a little bit better. Less trivial, more serious. In a significant relationship for a lot of people, it will be marriage. Uh, sometimes that relationship can be really difficult. And the world has this big voice and it says, you know what? Cut and run. Get out of there. It's all right. You do you. Be true to yourself. You know, that sort of thing. You know it's wrong. And so you're sticking out of this important relationship. But gee, it wears you down. Do you feel the, the day-in-day-out emotional burden of having to, to stay the righteous path? It gets me sometimes when my kids get an invitation to go to a birthday party. And, of course, it's on a Sunday morning during church. And, uh, well, I know as any, there's no such thing as a mature Christian uh, who is not committed to regular weekly church gathering. But, gee, I feel like a jerk when I say, no, I'm sorry. You're not going to go to that party because time with our spiritual family is actually the priority. And so you feel tired, you feel worn down. Righteous living can sometimes get really tiring. You know, I totally resonate with the writer of Psalm 73, beautiful Psalm 73. See, he looks out to the world of those who don't know God and he observes, and the words will be on the screen, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens and not plagued by human ills. Now, it's not actually true, but in terms of the expression, it's like you can understand what he's getting at. Skip down a few verses, verse 12. That is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. They don't have to stop at the amber light. They can just keep going and keep doing what suits them. So understandably... The writer of Psalm 73 wonders if righteousness is really worthwhile. From the next verse, verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. The modern version of that, you know, what about me? <laughs> now I wonder if you have, not just in your head but in your heart, ever got to the point where you've seriously wondered if living to please God is actually worth the effort. And today as we begin our new sermon series, or more accurately, we recommence our sermon series in Samuel, which began in 1 Samuel last year and we're picking it up in 2 Samuel now, uh, we, in the opening, which we've just had read for us, are confronted with a stark reminder that unrighteousness is only ever 
always the worst option, no matter what. It's only ever always the worst option. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get there, let's get our heads back in Samuel land. We're going to do a quick bit of background to get us all up to uh, speed on where we are at, uh, in the books of Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel starts with the words, After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Now, here's the situation, right? Saul was the king over Israel that the people chose. And they chose him not to make them more like God, but to make them more like the other nations all around about them. In other words, it wasn't going to be well in the end with Saul's kingship. David, on the other hand, was the king chosen according to God's own heart, the one that God wanted, the one that would be like God. Now, Saul was jealous of David and had been trying to kill him. In order to get away, David had pretended, note, pretended, to join forces with Israel's enemies, namely the Philistines. Now, David actually did have a couple of opportunities to kill Saul, but he chose not to take them because Saul was actually the Lord's anointed. The Lord made him Christ. And so to kill Saul would have been to kill the leader that God had put in charge. David had reasoned that Saul would somehow die eventually. Maybe the Lord would take him or he'd die of old age or he'd get struck down in battle. Now, in the course of time, the Philistines mounted a huge offensive against Israel. This is one of the big battles. David, remember, pretending to be a Philistine, wanted to join in, and we wonder why. Maybe he was going to do a switcheroo at the last minute, we don't know. But he wanted to join in, but they said no, they rejected him. And it turned out that was just as well, because when David moved from the battlefront to go back to his own home, his temporary home, and arrived in Ziklag, he discovered that this other group of enemies of Israel, namely the Amalekites, had actually raided his village and taken off with the wives and children of David and his men, so David then had to go out and fight the Amalekites to get them back. So we've got two big wars going on. Philistines with Israel, David and his men with the Amalekites. Now in 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, the Philistines actually win. They defeated Israel and Saul and his sons died all in the same day. And God had actually prophesied that that's what's going to happen. We learn in that chapter that Saul fell on his own sword in order to die, which was actually preferable to him than being captured by the Philistines. We also learn that David, on the other hand, was successful in his battle against the Amalekites. And he's returned to his temporary home in Ziklag, not yet knowing the outcome of the Philistine war. So... With the scene set, we now come to the meeting in which David learns of the death of Saul and his sons and, and the defeat of Israel and learns of the death of, of one of Saul's sons in particular, his best friend, Jonathan. But there's something kind of odd about the story of the young Amalekite man who informs David of Israel's defeat. I wonder if you sense the oddness as, as Phil was reading it out. Have a look again from verse 2. It says, on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. 
When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. And he answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. Now, two things to notice here with these words. First of all, on the third day is normally important. God orchestrates things in the Bible so that on the third day, things get confirmed. Uh, For example, Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. He takes a journey and on the third day, he looks up and sees Mount Moriah. He knows it's going to happen. For example, Israel are going to meet God at Mount Sinai. So they set up the the, the barriers around the mountain and, of course, on the third day, God comes to meet them. Queen Esther is going to approach King Xerxes, not knowing whether he's going to lift up the golden scepter or say, off with the head. So she fasts and prays and on the third day, she approaches him and he holds up the scepter, right? Third day is when things get confirmed. God had said that Saul and his sons would die on the same day. This guy comes, delivers the news to the new king of Israel, David, of course, It's on the third day. The second thing to notice here is there's a little bit of ambiguity about this young man's allegiance. You see, remember, David is pretending to be a Philistine, to be an enemy of Israel. And this guy says, I escaped from the Israelite camp. Or did he escape as a prisoner of the Israelites? Or did he escape as uh, someone who was you know, one of the, the, the victors, but he had to quickly get out of there because, you know, something had gone wrong. Maybe the Israelites had defeated them. And David sort of can't let, let on one way or the other. He has to wait. So David's actually very clever. He just asked him, well, we see it in a minute. Uh, but the way the young man presents the report makes it obvious to us that this guy is a citizen of Israel. He knows what matters to David. He knows what David's concerned with, and we see that because he presents it in increasing severity of importance to David. Now, look at verse 4. You'll see it all come together. What happened? David asks him. That's a very neutral kind of question, right? He doesn't say, oh, no, did Israel get defeated? No, no, just what happened? Tell me. And then you get the increasing order. Look at the words. The men fled from the battle... Oh, that's bad. Many of them fell and died. Which the words should be on the screen. Did I not do a slide? Oh. You're looking at verse 4 in your Bibles. Uh, the men fled, fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. Uh-oh. And Saul, oh no. And his son Jonathan, oh no, are dead. This guy knows what matters to David. Now, we know from verse 10 that this young man has Saul's crown and Saul's armband in his possession. And that would prove straight away that Saul really is dead. But he doesn't reveal that straight away. We get the impression that he wants an opportunity to tell the story of how things happened before he presents the irrefutable proof that he was there when Saul died. So verse 5, did I put this one there? Oh, good. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And this is the opportunity that this guy has been waiting for. We already know from 1 Samuel 31 that Saul took his own life using his sword and that Saul's armour bearer 
Must have been certain Saul was dead because he took his own life as well. He wasn't going to do that if Saul was still alive. But now as this young man tells this story, he inserts himself into the narrative in such a way that in his mind at least, it'll make David really happy with him. Verse 6, he continues, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. Interesting. We know it was a sword, but only Saul and Jonathan had spears, so this seems very credible that it was definitely Saul. He was leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Now, this is where things start to sound a bit fishy. Instead of saying his name, he just says, I'm an Amalekite, which could be highly ambiguous, because remember, the Amalekites are enemies of Israel. Saul was going to lose his kingship precisely because he didn't kill all of them. The leaning on his spear thing, spear and sword, they're very different things, and they're different words in the original language. And the fact that Saul says to him, who are you? If you're the king in a battle, typically... You're surrounded by people that you know and trust. It's a bit strange for an unknown person to be close enough to, to have a conversation in the midst of battle. But then it becomes even more clear, to us as the readers at least, that this guy is telling a brilliantly crafted lie. You guys all know the best kind of lie to tell, right? The best craft of lie? It's when it's like 95% true. This guy probably was there, he probably does know stuff, he probably did witness stuff, but it's just the few little details that you change. That's how to tell a good lie. So here he goes, verse 9. Then he, Saul, said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. Okay. I'm trying to imagine someone actually saying that, whatever. Verse 10. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I knew that after he'd fallen, he could not survive. A little bit of end justifies the means, yeah. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Now he gives it away that this is definitely the case that Saul's dead. And so now it all comes together. We know that Saul was already dead, but this guy, after bowing down in honour to David has claimed to have been the one who delivered the fatal blow, almost certainly with the belief that doing so will put him in the favour of Israel's new king. He assumes that because Saul was hunting David, which is true, that David would be glad to hear of Saul's demise. And now, as the new king of Israel, perhaps there'd even be some kind of reward for this young, opportunistic Amalekite. A little bit of untruth in order to gain great standing with Israel's king. Surely this will be one of those few times where crime actually does pay. People believe crime pays, otherwise we have no need for cops, right? People do have this belief. Just a little bit of unrighteousness in order to gain a lifetime worth of advantage. But of course, then we get the response of David. You see, unlike the typical rulers in our world, David's response turns out to be genuinely righteous, which spells doom for this young Amalekite. From verse 11, which you can see there, then David and all the men with him 
took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening, note, for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I wonder whether or not this young Amalekite was a little bit worried when he realised that David was mourning not only for Jonathan and the Israelites, but even also for the Lord's anointed, for Saul. Now, perhaps he could have convinced himself that David was just putting on an act to save face. I mean, David's pretty good at acting, right? We've seen it all through 1 Samuel. But you and I know that David had had opportunities to kill Saul, easy opportunities. Remember that once where Abishai he said, I'll peg him with a spear right now? Or when he was in the cave and he cut the corner of his cloak, he could have cut his throat. David had every opportunity to murder Saul. But he was resolute in sparing Saul precisely because he knew that God had anointed him as the king. To kill Saul would be a dreadful affront to God himself. And so then we come to the sad climax of the story, where upon the unexpected fate of this young Amalekite, he sealed. Verse 13, David said to the young man who brought in the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. Now, by the way, if you've got an ESV, uh, you'll see that it says he's the son of a sojourner. That is, he's not an ethnic Israelite, but he's a citizen of Israel nonetheless. He would have known that it's a dreadful thing to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So verse 14, David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? He doesn't really have to get an answer. That's already sealed the guy's fate. So verse 15, then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Or, to put it in modern English, I killed the Lord's Christ. And so it is that an opportunistic lie that was very close to the truth became the undoing of this young Amalekite man. He sincerely believed that claiming to have executed Saul would make him favourable in the sight of Israel's new king. But, you know, people can sincerely believe things and at the same time be sincerely wrong. I heard of a terrible example once of a wife who killed her husband. She gave him ten times the dosage of medication that he was on for something serious because she misread where the decimal point was. She sincerely believed she was helping him, and she was. But she wasn't. She was sincerely wrong. Uh, it is possible to uh, be sincere in your belief that you're actually kind of all right with Israel's true king, namely Jesus, but not in your heart of hearts, have any kind of concern for righteousness, to not have any real desire to be obedient to Jesus, to kind of leave him as a take it or leave it kind of thing and sincerely think that you'll be right. But you could be sincerely wrong. Make sure that's not you. This guy didn't bank on the fact that Israel's new king, the king chosen according to God's own heart, was a king who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And so, of course, it is with the true Davidic king that God has anointed to rule not just over Israel, but over you and me now and over everyone in the whole world, namely Jesus. You see... 
With Saul, it was on the third day that the confirmation came that his kingship had ended. With Jesus, it was on the third day that the confirmation came from God himself very directly that he truly is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, that he is the Messiah and that his eternal kingdom has now come into effect. Those who are on the side of righteousness are the ones who are in his kingdom. Those who are not righteous will definitely be opposed by him. The people who had crucified Jesus would come to realise that even worse than this poor Amalekite dude who claimed to have killed the, Lord, the Lord's anointed, that they really had killed the Lord's Christ when they had put Jesus on the cross. And in Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, and I really hope I put this one up, he said to such people, Therefore let Israel be, all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And of course, verse 37, you can imagine the horror when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, we expect to be struck down by God because we've killed the Lord's Christ. We know what happens to people who kill the Lord's Christ. Well, that's us. And that's why some of the most amazing and breathtaking words in the scriptures are in the next verse. Acts 2 verse 38, Peter replied, repent. And be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spoils of his victory. And the promise is for you and your children, all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. Isn't that an incredible turn that those who kill the Lord's Christ, who should expect nothing but death, are the ones that actually can receive forgiveness should they turn and repent. You see, Jesus' death pays the price for all our unrighteousness, past, present, future. Even the horrendously wicked act of putting the Lord's Christ to death still can uh, be met with genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. It's still available for anyone who repents and put their faith in Jesus. You don't have to be like that young Amalekite you can have complete forgiveness from all unrighteousness by putting your trust in Jesus and leaving him with, uh, with him as your Lord and therefore you don't need to gain any advantage with God's king, especially by being unrighteous. You have all the advantage you could ever possibly need. Thinking that doing something unrighteous will better your cause is, is, is frankly unchristian. But to know Jesus as the Lord's anointed, to have enjoyed the full forgiveness he has given us, is to know that it is only ever always wrong to choose unrighteousness, no matter how slight. Yes, righteous living can get tiring, but when it comes to unrighteous living, I'll tell you what, in the end, there'll be no rest day or night for the wicked in their eternal torment. To put it simply, for those who serve God's anointed king, Unrighteousness is only ever always the worst option. Crime does not pay. Not with Jesus. You remember that Jesus himself taught that those who belong to his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, they are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones, they're the ones who will be blessed. No matter how tiring our ongoing obedience to Jesus can become, it is always only ever better to pursue righteousness than to compromise. Sin will never 
lead to a real advantage. Now, of course, it might give temporary worldly benefits, but what good is that in the end? There's never any good from that. The writer of Psalm 73, which I quoted from the beginning, also saw this to be the case. Later on in his psalm, he writes, when I tried to understand all this, that is that the the wicked seemed to prosper, it troubled me deeply, verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. This Amalekite looked like he got it all made. No, but look at his final destiny. Verse 18, surely you, God, place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, which is basically exactly what happened to this young Amalekite. Friends, where does the rubber hit the road for you? In what areas of your life are you tempted to think that a little bit of unrighteousness will actually be beneficial? I see it in small and big ways in my own life all the time. Who's got a phone that when they're driving in the car it says, you know, driving mode on or whatever and you're not supposed to touch the buttons on it? Anyone got that, that thing? Yeah. How tempting always. Oh, well, you know, I just changed my playlist or whatever. Like, oh, it's always like that. It's not going to do any problem. It's not going to do any wrong. What's, it's just a little thing. Just a little bit of unrighteousness. No. My king loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And the temporary little bit of useless advantage that I might perceive, even this small slight, is not worth dishonouring the one who has made me completely righteous for all eternity in the sight of God. What is it for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Christ, for the one that you deem to be the Christ by his resurrection from the dead, confirmed on the third day, We thank you that in his death, he paid the price to forgive us from all unrighteousness, from all sin, even sin as horrendous as raising our hand against your anointed. Heavenly Father, having that amazing eternal advantage, may we not be so stupid as to think that dishonouring our king by even small acts of unrighteousness is advantageous to us at all. Help us, Father, to be those who repent and who constantly come to Jesus for forgiveness for all our wrongs, whether big or small, that we might honour him as the king that he is and give him the honour he deserves in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.